I always say that petty cash is a bad idea. Cash is can be difficult to account for. Cash can can go walking away, uh, and cash can be stolen. I always encourage people not to have petty cash, and but petty cash, for you know, for the sake of this discussion, is is small potatoes compared yeah. to you know when I'm talking about fraud. It's you know tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars that are that are stolen from communities. HOE Insights, common sense for common areas, exists to help all 2 million volunteer board members nationwide have the right information at the right time to make the right decisions for their future. This podcast is sponsored by four companies that care about board members, Association Insights and Marketplace, Association Reserves, Community Financials, and Kevin Davis Insurance Services. You'll find links to their websites and social media in the show notes. Welcome back to HOA Insights, common sense for common areas. I'm Robert Nordland, and I'm here today with a special guest to talk about financial best practices and specifically how to minimize the opportunities for fraud at your association. This is episode number 37, but before I introduce today's guest expert, I want to encourage everyone to check out episode number 36 where regular co-host Kevin Davis shared how to avoid a big insurance claim at your association. Now, if you missed any other prior episodes, take a moment at the end of the program to subscribe to this podcast on any of the most popular podcast platforms. You can also listen from our podcast website, www.hoainsights.org, or watch on our YouTube channel. And if you've got a hot topic, a crazy story, or a question you'd like us to address, leave us a voicemail, and that would be at 805-203-3130, or send us an email at podcast at reservesteady.com. Well, today it's my pleasure to welcome back Russell Munns of Community Financials, who you last heard back in episode 16. Community Financials is, as our listeners know, one of our sponsors, and we've asked Russell back because his firm provides the financial management services for community associations and, frankly, He's an expert in the field. So welcome to the program, Russell. Thanks for having me back, Robert. Well, I thought we could start today's program by asking a question from Lydia in New Jersey. How much money should we hold in our operating or checking account? Well, uh, hi, Lydia. Thanks for your question. And I would say that it, it usually there's no usual answer. So it's... <laughs> It depends on, I would say that it depends on each community's needs. So you could be living in a four unit community or you could be living in a 400 unit community. And so it would change you know, drastically. But of course you wanna have enough money to pay your current obligations or your recurring bills so that you're not running a deficit, that you have money set aside going to fund your reserve. So you have a surplus that goes to a reserve account. And that you're transferring on a regular basis. You're transferring on a monthly basis per whatever you have in your bud your budget for the year. Uh, uh, but that you know that being said, if you want to use a rule of thumb, I would suggest you know keeping three months of your operating expenses in your at least three months of you know of operating expenses uh, in your op in your checking account to cover uh, cover any of those things that might come up. Plus, also remember many associations pay the insurance bill uh, in one chunk. So you might be making sure you have additional money to cover that when it comes due. 
And so that that might plus up that three months uh, when you're getting closer to, to whenever that renewal is. Yeah, well, I'm relieved because sometimes we get clients who come to us with one bank account and they say, well, Robert, uh, you're doing our reserves today. How much of that should we have in reserves and how much should we leave in checking? And I've always told them two or three months and watch the time of year because of your big bills. And I think big bills is an insurance bill nowadays. So I'm glad to hear you saying the same thing. I was kind of bracing myself for what, oh, what no. you might answer. Oh, yeah, we're, we're, we're tracking. Okay, good. I like that. Well, let's talk about uh, fraud. We actually have some clients who tell us they don't want to collect reserves because they don't want it there for the board to misappropriate, or for the board to steal. Is fraud really a, a big, um, yeah, I said a really a big concern? Is it, difference, is it different for the checking account or the reserve account? Well, fraud is real, and unfortunately, it happens more often in this industry than it should. And uh, I've done, you know, uh, I'll I'll get into it to uh, a couple of couple of resources later on. But I, I learned about fraud from a firsthand experience where, a, a com- when I was running a property management company, a competitor accounting staff member had allegedly stolen over $2 million worth of funds from the associations. And I know how they did it, and I'll get into that in the, later on in the episode. Uh, and you know, I had to meet with board members looking for a new management solution after that. And it had a profound impact on me personally and the rest of my career, which is part of what I you know, wanted to bring the systems and processes for transparency and great accounting to uh, help communities around the country so that they didn't experience the same thing or go through the same thing that those board members did. Now, as far as you don't want to save money because you don't want to have fraud, well, I think those are two different things. You want to save money so that you don't have to pay for money uh, when you need to borrow it from a bank. And right. you want to save money so it's predictable for your homeowners so that they don't have to get, you know, uh, the letter in the mail that says they've got an unexpected special assessment that's coming up. So yeah, well, I would say let me, you want to right there. You want to keep the keep the funds in the reser- the two different accounts, right? Primarily, you have a right. checking account and then an oper- a reserve account. And then, as far as the concern about reserve funds being stolen, I would, would uh, I'd just say that typically reserve accounts don't have, or or most often don't have check checkbooks with them. Right, so there's probably less likelihood that that uh, funds would be stolen because there's there's typically more times you're going to have more checks available for an operating account with your for your regular funds. So is fraud then more commonly a little bit of money repeatedly over a long period of time rather than all of a sudden fifty grand or hundred grand going missing? Typically, yes. And it can happen not only from, it happens from all different ways. So it happens from a board member. It can happen from on-site staff. It can happen from a management company. Uh, I've probably done over 20 case studies of fraud and embezzlement in different states by different, you know, and all three of those different types of people that that might steal funds. And to see why, how they did it and how we could kind of reverse engineer to prevent it from happening. And so that's a good point for us to discuss today. Yeah, well, I like that. 
Um, when I come up against it in the reserve field, it's when they thought they had enough money for a project and they realize it's not there in the bank account. Or they thought they hired someone to, or they, they thought they, they paid for someone to resurface the roof and they realize that project didn't get done. It was a sweetheart deal with an a insider and it, it was the fake roofer and the manager colluding to you know get a big chunk of money and the work just didn't get done. So there, I, I guess, like you said, there's so many different ways it can happen. You're absolutely right. And there are ways where there's been fraud from, we'll just talk about your particular case, fraud where the vendor uh, is in cahoots with somebody and they overbill the association and it seems like a high price uh, or maybe there weren't other bids. And then the, you know, there's a kickback or some other, uh, some, some other way of, of, of getting the money to the, you know, the other party. And then the work ends up being sloppy work that oftentimes has to be redone anyway. So it's a, even more expensive for the association, unfortunately. The next thing would be somebody creating a fake entity where they might have a fake you know, company that they set up and then they have bills paid to that fake entity. And it looks like they're trying to make it look like a vendor. That could be a, um, you know, also done by a board member or a management team member. Uh, it could also be where the checks are made out to, you know, as there was one case in Florida where a board member had made checks that were similar to her name, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't her name, end up being, you know, that was way that was happening. And she was forging the, even though there were dual signatures on the checks, she was forging another board member's signature. There's other times when somebody just has the, the checkbook and then they're writing checks and it's one person on the board in charge of the checkbook. And then they don't have, you know, the transparency so that other board members can really identify what's happening until they just notice that there's no money in their bank account. Usually happens over time and it's smaller increments. Uh, and, but and I'll give you one one more example. On-site, uh, this is a funny one, on-site uh, property manager had a debit card for the association and uh, withdrew funds and end up withdrawing funds from a local casino. In addition to that, that she also wrote herself uh, additional paychecks because she was using just a, a like kind of a desktop software version of, of payroll software and was writing herself additional checks. A lot of the ways that it happens are with controls around paying bills and using the checkbook. If you were to summarize it, you're talking about controls around paying bills or using the checkbook. And are you talking about physical checkbook or any kind of electronic payment? Most of the time when they're reporting the fraud, and it is with physical checks. Sometimes there were wires, and you know, uh, where one, two people were in cahoots and one wired funds to the other person. But typically, they are uh, they are done by physical check. Now, the other part. You know, just to go off where it could happen for receivables, where homeowner pay bills, you know, homeowner payments are being put into a different account. So it's either commingled with the management company's account, and then the management company is using them for non-association, uh, you know, reasons, 
or they set up a dummy account and put the money from the homeowner payments into that dummy account. And so that's another way of taking, you know, and then they spend the money from the account that they set up. Those are also ways that it happened. But I would say that more frequently in the case studies that I went went through, it was from, you know, poor practices around paying bills. Is it, I've got two follow-ups to that. One is, is it a petty cash issue? Is it, could be that they keep a hundred bucks for um, minor things or is that, is petty cash pretty much gone nowadays? Unfortunately, petty cash is not gone. I have run into prospects that, that come to us and ask about having petty cash. I always say that petty cash is a bad idea. Cash is can be difficult to account for. Cash can, can go walking away uh, and cash can be stolen. I always encourage people not to have petty cash. And But petty cash for you know for the sake of this discussion is is small potatoes compared yeah. to you know you know maybe there's petty cash of a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars at an association but you know when I'm talking about fraud it's you know tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars that are that are stolen from communities that's a good point if someone if the janitor um, steals a 20 out of someone's desk because they know that's where the petty cash is that is almost immaterial um, what about things like nowadays uh, Zelle or Venmo? Is that a, a red flag or can those be used appropriately? You know, I would say in most cases with associations, they're going to have a kind of a, a business checking account. And business checking accounts are different than personal checkings account, checking accounts. And most business checking accounts don't have Zelle or Venmo. Okay. Those are mostly tied or linked to a uh, a personal checking account. So the, in a in a business banking account, and most of the banks that are you know that are gonna that's specialize in working with homeowner associations, community associations, they're gonna they're gonna have kind of permissions based um, methods of transferring funds by either ACH or check or. Uh, elect other electronic means, but it's not going to be through Venmo or Zelle. Those have typically, uh, like in our business, we have one person can initiate a wire or an ACH, and then the second person, uh, the senior person, has to approve it so that there's dual control over that as well. So you want to look for that in your community also. At controls. So the controls end up being one of the, the basic things. Yes. Fantastic. Okay, well, let's, um, with that, we'll take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Kevin Davis, the president of Kevin Davis Insurance Services. Our experienced team of underwriters will help you when you get that declination. We provide the voice of reason, someone who will stand by you. Our underwriters bring years of knowledge to our clients that can't be automated by technology or driven by price. As a proud Anwins company, we bring true value to your community association clients. We are your community association insurance experts. And we're back. Uh, during our break, Russell was telling stories and he said he had one more story and an example of another way fraud occurs. So Russell, why don't you tell our audience? Sure. So sometimes, you know, fraud can occur in a lot of different ways, like I mentioned, what we mentioned before, but sometimes it's, it's it can seem more innocent where a board member just isn't paying their their dues. 
Uh, there's some cases where a board member didn't pay their common charges for up to 10 years. And because, you know, and then uh, maybe they were one of only, you know, one or two people on the board. And they they felt, even though it wasn't in their declaration and bylaws, that they were uh, due compensation for their role as a volunteer, which kind of flies in the face of being a volunteer. So um, many times, you know, uh, you got to be careful about that. Also, board members that are handy, maybe, and they say that they'll do some things around the association and maybe they get compensated for it. You can, uh, but you'll have to have something in writing where uh, you feel that there's good value and there's accountability and there's transparency into paying for that. But, you know, you may want to just steer clear of that as well for, uh, for the reasons. And then there's the last one is, you know, of course, if there's a vote to to use a vendor and the vendor is related to a person on the board, you want to uh, make sure that that person on the board uh, has to abstain from the vote, right? Uh, right. So that there's no conflict of interest. They have to declare if there's a conflict of interest. And having a good delinquency and collections protocol uh, is going, to, and also transparency around your age receivables and who owes money to the association is going to be ways that you can kind of, uh, you know, make sure that that's not happening. Well, let's uh, kind of transition here. Let's uh, take a different angle. If you suspect, if you do the math and you know you're paying $350 a month and you just see a lot of things not happening at your association, you see the bank balance not going up, um, you suspect something in your association. What do you do as a homeowner or a board member? Unfortunately, I'm going to say most of the times homeowners and a lot of board members don't even see what's happening with the bank balances. Okay. So if that's, that's the first red flag. So if you don't have a way of having banking information, which would mean bank statements added to the back of your financial report package, Receiving financial reports at all for a period of time, right? Uh, I have oftentimes I get customers that come to us say we haven't received financial reports in three, six months, and that's a red flag. Uh, even better is if you have uh, work with a company that has a portal where the bank balances and the bank transactions and the check images sync into that system so that you can have the complete visibility over the picture of your community. Like, like we provide to our clients. So those are ways that you can kind of steer clear of of, uh, of, of, of that type of activity. Well, is it, um, on that line, is it important or is it a value to have multiple board members with login access to the bank so they can see that? Or does that just put more sticky fingers into the bank balance that you wouldn't want to do? You'd want to have more than one person having access to view the bank so that there is checks and balances. And you want to okay. have more than one person on the board having approval of, you know, uh, of invoices or paying bills so that there's checks and balances. And then then there's got to be two two bad apples on your board that are in cahoots. And there's, you know, typically that's going to be less likely. Um, so than just having one lone lone actor that that does these types of things. In the systems these days, for you know, to answer your question, our system, all the board members have access to that information so that they can can see it. All right. So when it does happen, if if you do spot it, 
there's a couple of ways to spot it. One is the bank balance is lower than you expected, right? Second is if you're getting financial reports, you have, you know, most of the most of the report packages. The most, like my favorite report is the income and expense report that shows the income coming in versus budget for the year and month to date and any variances. So you can spot variances. Well, how come we're underfunded here? Or how come this expense was way over budget? And then you can dig deeper into it. So you can look at that report too. So then you can help to identify these things. Also, like I said before, the the balances. Um, and, and so when you do spot those things, that's when you can go looking for, you know, clues. In this case, the clues would be found on your bank statements where you can see what we've been talking about. A lot of this is, well, how come I see all the check images that were with this bank statement, or I see all these withdrawals and they don't match up, or it doesn't make sense to me that uh, we're, we're paying this vendor. I've never seen this vendor before. Or, you know, I saw that this this these bills went to a person uh, or a name that looks very similar to somebody on our board. This bill to the contractor was supposed to be $40,000 and the check is for $60,000. So those are some ways that just were from the instances we were talking about before where you can take a look at it. So you can find a lot of information on going through the, the bank statement. And one of the things that you know, the association should have as part of their financial report package to make this easier not only that report that I said with the variance and the bank statements, but also is the the bank reconciliation report, which has, which is a way at a point in time, uh, right? Because when financials are completed, that the what's shown on the financial reports matches up with what's on the in the bank accounts, and so that bank reconciliation report should show that they're, you know, that that everything matches up. And so that's one of those fraud prevention tools as well, as if you're making sure you're getting that in your report package. So if you're not getting reports on time, if you are not getting bank statements, if you are not getting bank reconciliation reports, those are red flags to me. And uh, you know, from that story I mentioned earlier about where I had a competitor that stole you know lots and lots of money, it was because the controller didn't provide bank reconciliation reports, didn't provide bank statements and doctored the financial statements. Yeah. Um, Russell, is this, if we have a listener here who is a homeowner who, you know, there's so many people out there who think that the homeowner assessments are too high. They don't see good things happening at their association. Number one, from my point of view, it's just a failure to appreciate that living in an a community association is, is expensive and it takes a lot of money just to make it go. I believe in my heart that the actual occurrences of fraud are low. Of course, they're high enough that we want to minimize them and push them down. I, I agree. But, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, but is there, does a homeowner have the right to ask for those reports that you were talking about so they can satisfy their curiosity? They can be the watchdog. And now it may be annoying to the board, but maybe that's their safeguard to have an independent homeowner, Mr. Smith or Mrs. Johnson in unit number 13, who just studies that. And is is that within the their right to ask for that and get that kind of information? And is that good? Sure. Well, let me start off 
by saying more involvement from homeowners in the community is always a good thing. I would suggest that person that has that interest, and maybe it's a person with some financial background, that person, I encourage them to, to join the board to run for a seat on the board and be a volunteer on the board. And then you're going to be in, in those, you know, in the flow of all of that information on a monthly basis and your voice can be heard. The next thing I would, you know, the next best thing is some larger communities or some communities with more volunteerism have finance committees and those people get together and they're, they're a body outside of the board. They review things and then they report to the board, their findings. And if there's, it's usually more than one person, but maybe it could be, you know, you could approach your board and ask if you could be the finance committee of one uh, and your experience is you're a retired CPA or something, you yeah. know, or you're just a concerned homeowner. Right. Uh, but to go back to your initial question is, yes, a homeowner can request to view specific information of the association and take a look at it. Now, note, you're not going to be able to view age receivables report because delinquencies of the uh, homeowners violates privacy's good regulations. Point. Good point. And there, you know, maybe they would redact uh, some sensitive information. How much the well, what is sensitive information? How much the manager's paycheck is compared to the janitor's paycheck? I don't really think so. I but you know, I would say that. What we try and encourage is, uh, and when you're saying redacted, I would say it's not the complete financial report package, which has some reports like the age receivable report that you can't share. But yeah. for most most owners, what we want to try and do is provide that level of understanding or transparency to them. And you would put the balance sheet, which shows how much money is in the different bank accounts, or how much money is owed to the credit, you know, if you have a credit card or owed to vendors and hasn't been paid yet, et cetera. And then you would have the comparative income and expense statement that's going to show the actual versus budget. So you'll see the budget and any variance. So you can see how your community is being run effectively or not effectively. And I would say that those are typically um, you know, a lot of our customers will put the year-end financial reports, the balance sheet, and the you know once it's been either sometimes it's been audited, and we can get into talking about that also. But you can be audited, or at least when it's closed, the year-end is closed, and then you put it into there, and so uh, and you share it with the homeowners so that they know at least how last year went and what it looks like. And it has all of you know you can see all the income and expenses uh, line items broken out. Maybe there's one at the end of the year, maybe there's one mid-year. And that usually provides that level of trust and transparency with homeowners. And maybe if there were bad things happening in your community uh, and then they were found out, maybe your your homeowners might want to see that on a quarterly basis uh, to improve that trust. Is it appropriate to send information out, financial information out on a monthly basis with the uh, board meeting minutes? You know, it's up to whatever the board and the homeowners decide is right for their community. So I've I've seen some smaller communities where they they share that information out. Got it. Um, on a, and there's some communities where they do that on a monthly basis. Maybe you know we've got a a portal where the homeowners can view certain documents and the board members see different documents. So the complete report packet would sit in the board folder, uh, but the you know the one that's just the balance sheet and the income and expense report might go into the homeowner. Uh, folder for them to be able to view whenever they log into the system. 
Yeah. Well, I like transparency. I think transparency, and you've said it a number of times, you've said a couple of words that I caught. One is um, transparency, and you said um, not collaborating, but um, co. Uh, the, when you have two people doing bad things. So you want the internal controls to prevent right. the, uh, the, the collusion of oh, two it. people. Those are some bad things going on. Well, uh, Russ, I'll look at the clock and uh, it's time to be able to close down. So thank you for joining us. It was great to have you back on the program. Any parting thoughts as we close out this episode? I would say that most most people are honest, you know, great volunteers that are helping out the community when other people in the community don't want to volunteer. We want to also, though, provide a framework for board members to make sure that they're doing things in the best way because when they leave the board, they don't know who's going to come on the board to replace them. So you want to put into place a framework where you have these checks and balances, you've got the transparency, uh, a lot of things where two board members are approving bills before they're paid. If you have a physical checkbook, you know, uh, make sure you know where the where the blank checks are so that not just one person is writing checks and nobody else is aware of it and that you've got access to all of the things that I talked about before. And on our website, there's a, you know, uh, I think it's a, 11 ways to avoid fraud and theft at your community that uh, that listeners can go to and check out at that communityfinancials.com uh, to see if there's ways that they can improve things at their community. Excellent. I was going to go right to that. How can they get in touch with you? Well, communitiesfinancials.com. And if they have a particular question for you, um, how can they get in touch with you? Best way is on the website, communityfinancials.com, and financials has an S at the end of it. Just put in the contact form uh, on the website, and uh, our staff will get it to me to, to, to answer your question. Fantastic. Well, Russell, just fascinating stuff, important stuff, and the great material to share with our audience. Well, we hope you learned some HOA insights from our discussion today that help you bring common sense to your common areas. We look forward to having you join us for another great episode next week. You've been listening to HOA Insights, common sense for common areas. You can listen to the show on our podcast website, hoainsights.org, or subscribe on any of the most popular podcast platforms. You can also watch the show on our YouTube channel. Check the show notes for helpful links. If you like the show and want to support the work we do, you can do so in a number of ways. The most important thing you can do is to engage in the conversation. Email your questions or voice memos to podcast at reservestudy.com or leave us a voicemail at 805-203-3130. If you gain any insights from the show, please do us a huge favor by sharing the show with other board members you know. You can also support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. Please remember that the views and opinions expressed by the podcast do not constitute legal advice. You'll want to consult your own legal counsel before making any important decisions. Finally, this podcast was expertly mixed and mastered by Stokelight Video and Marketing. With Stokelight on your team, you'll reach more customers with marketing expertise that inspires action. See the show notes to connect with Stokelight.